This is Stacy Eldridge. Welcome to Captivated. This world vies for our attention in a thousand different ways. But the most important thing, the preeminent thing, the essential thing is to give our attention to Jesus. Welcome, beloveds of God. Stacy here, the week of February 23rd already. And I am so happy to be with you today. Thanks for tuning in. So some of you may know that I was raised in a Catholic family, in a serious Catholic family. In the Catholic Church, one of the seven sacraments is the sacrament of confession. And Catholics are urged to go, well, it's required to go once a year, but they are encouraged to go at least once a month. My family went at least every two weeks. And I, you know, it doesn't say a lot about our family. It says a lot about my mother and how seriously she took our faith. So when I was about 12 years old, my grandmother was visiting, and for a good time, we all went to confession. You go into a cubicle, it has a special name, and you confess your sins to a priest who then gives you a penance to do, prayers to pray, something to do for God, for other people, and then you come out and you have a time of prayer in the church. Well, I went in first, and then when I came out, I was kneeling and praying when I felt from God, like, the urge to come closer. So I did. I, I slipped out of my pew. I walked a couple of pews forward and slipped back in and kneeled again, and I felt again him say, come closer. At the front of our church wasn't the traditional crucifix, but it was actually a piece of modern art with the risen Christ ascending into heaven. And I continued to hear him say, come closer, until I was kneeling at the very front of the altar, as close as I could possibly get. When my mom and grandmother came out, they found me and said, what are you doing up there? And I said, well, he told me to come closer. And my grandmother said, she did it again. Well, I didn't know what I did, but I got to hear the story. That when I was three years old, we were visiting my grandmother up there in North Dakota. And again, we had gone to confession together. When my mother and grandmother had come out, they couldn't find me. And then, to their astonishment, they saw me, and I had not only gone to the front of the church, I had crawled over the rail and was kneeling on the altar. And they said, what are you doing up there? I said, he told me to come closer. Come closer. It's what our God wants. God moved heaven and earth so that we would come close. He wants that with us so much that God became a man and walked among us that we might come close, that we might know him. In Hosea chapter 2, verse 19, God says to us, So I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in loving devotion and compassion, and I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will know the Lord's. The Hebrew word here is yada. See, there's a knowing about someone, and then there is the personal, relational knowledge. I know my husband, John, is 61 years old and that he loves the outdoors. It's where he's revived. 
A lot of people know that about him. But I also know what it's like to make him laugh so hard that he falls on the floor. I know the nuances of his facial expressions, the slight reflection of emotions in his eyes, what the sound of his voice conveys. I know what brings him delight and what makes him mad. I know that as only a woman who has lived with him and loved him for more than 40 years. I yada him. And our God wants that kind of knowing with us. In Hosea, God was letting Israel know that he wanted Israel to experience his love for them and for it to become the kind of knowing that transformed their hearts and their lives so that they would love him in return. He wants the same for us, to yada him, to know him by experience. It's a personal, relational knowledge that becomes the kind of knowing that transforms our hearts and our lives so that we love him in return. Beloved friends, we need to know Jesus more deeply than we do. But this kind of yada knowing, this kind of experiential knowing, it doesn't roll in on the tray. Though grace and love are unconditional, intimacy with Jesus isn't. It kind of may sound like a hard thing to hear, but I'm going to say it again. Grace and love are unconditional. Intimacy with Jesus isn't. There are conditions. In Jeremiah 29, verse 13, God says, You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. We need intimacy with God, and he wants it with us. But it requires us to desire it, to pursue it. It takes intention, choices, risks, courage. It takes time. Both the time of walking with our God over the days and the decades, but also the time to set apart Jesus as a priority in our lives, in our day-to-day. It takes a desire that runs so deep. It causes us to move toward the Lord Jesus with passionate intent to come close. Okay, so let's talk about one of my favorite women in the Bible who did come close, who risked it all out of her passion, her courage, and her wholehearted love of Jesus. It's a woman who knew him very well. And let's see if we can learn from her and become women who are like her. Mary of Bethany. Mary was Martha's sister, and I'm sure you've heard the story of Mary and Martha many times, and it deserves to be told many times. Side note, my mother hated that story. She thought that Martha was unappreciated, undervalued, and got a raw deal. And who of us doesn't agree at some level? I mean, somebody had to cook the meal. Women usually find themselves in the kitchen at gatherings, either preparing the food or cleaning it up. I know I do. I'm often even more comfortable in there. So, yeah, I kind of relate to Martha, too, a little more deeply than I care to admit. But in this story, Martha represents a busy and distracted bride, a distracted church, a bride that has exchanged relationship with Jesus for service of him. And we don't want to do that. 
Let me read from Luke chapter 10. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered. You are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Martha criticized her sister and rebuked the Lord, basically saying, Why are you just sitting there? Do you not see what is happening here? I am working so hard, and my sister's doing nothing. Make her help me. I love how Jesus gently chided Martha for her worry and her distraction about many things. He didn't say that what Martha was doing was wrong, but that her attitude was. But Mary's focus, she was not distracted. Her focus was undivided. She wasn't being lazy. She had been captured. She wasn't moving about helping her sister because she was smitten with Jesus. She had chosen to learn from him, to listen to his words, to open her heart and her mind to him. She was taking him all in. Her attention was fixed upon him. She was actually doing the one thing that was required, loving Jesus. And Jesus applauded her choice. She fixed her attention on Jesus, and we can do the same. She sat at Jesus' feet, listening to his every word, and we can do the same. We meet Mary later, after the death of her brother Lazarus, but for the sake of time, I'm going to move ahead to the last time we encounter Mary of Bethany in Scripture. It's while Jesus is having dinner with her very much alive brother Lazarus, and Martha is, well, she's serving. And it's here that Mary did the unthinkable. She left the room and then came back in quietly, having gotten an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. Many commentators believe it was her life savings. And by the way, she planned this in advance. It wasn't an impulsive move because she was having dinner at someone else's house, and she must have brought it with her. She comes in, and she breaks the neck of the jar open and slowly poured some of the perfume on Jesus' head and then poured the rest on his feet. And then she did something really personal and intimate. She unbound her hair and wiped her feet with it, even though a respectable woman did not let her hair down in public. Mary was not concerned with what anyone else thought. She had an undivided heart. She goes and she gets all that she has and all that she owns, and she breaks it open and she pours it all out on Jesus. She offered Jesus quite literally all that she could. She spent herself on him, and she ministered to him in a culturally significant way. Nowadays, pouring out all of your Chanel number no. 5 onto someone you think highly of might well end that relationship. But what Mary did was a recognizable offering of worship and anointing. And there were several immediate results. 
first, the fragrance of her offering filled the room. There was a change in the atmosphere. When we pour out all that we have and are and offer ourselves in worship to Jesus, the beauty of that offering can be sensed in those around us. The second thing that happened after Mary ministered to Jesus was that the disciples rebuked her for it. Remember? I mean, over and over, Jesus had told his disciples that he would be killed in Jerusalem and then rise again, but they didn't understand. The opposition to Jesus was growing stronger every day. There was a contract out on his life. He was being hunted. It was attentive Mary who sat at the Lord's feet, who knew that there was not much time left. And there was nothing that Mary owned that she would not spend on him. The other Gospels tell us that all the disciples were indignant and rebuked her harshly. What a waste of money! A whole year's wages just poured out for nothing. Think of how many poor families could eat for a week on that. They saw only money. Mary saw only Jesus. In Mark 14, 6, Jesus said, Why are you bothering this woman? Leave her alone. She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. I tell you the truth. Wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done, will also be told in memory of her. Jesus defended Mary's reckless devotion, and he is our defender as well. No one understood what Mary did except Jesus. Jesus got Mary, and he gets you. He knew Mary's heart. He knew the depth of her love. He said she has done a beautiful thing to me. He never said that about anyone or anything else. She did a beautiful thing to me. What was that? She spent all her love on him. And by the way, Mary's offering would have lingered at the cross. The fragrance of the oil that she had poured out on Jesus days before would still be on his hair, on his feet, everywhere else it had tripped. Mary wasn't at the crucifixion, not this one, and we don't know why she wasn't there. Perhaps it was because her heart just couldn't take seeing her Lord put to death. She wasn't there physically, but the beauty of her offering was. Mary spent herself on Jesus. She poured out all that she was and all that she had onto him. She ministered to the heart of Jesus. Friends, We get to minister to the heart of Jesus. And we do that when we pour our love out on him like oil as a response to who he is and what he's done. We respond to him because he has captured our hearts. We offer what we can by offering our hearts devotion, our adoration, our love. It is what Jesus most longs for. He's not panting after our sacrifice or even our obedience. He doesn't need our money. He doesn't even need our gifting. Oh, but he wants our hearts. He wants the sacrifice of our love. It's the one thing we possess 
that he cannot claim without us offering it to him. Jesus longs for your hearts, for you to come close to him. And he has been moving through all eternity, battling, suffering, dying, conquering, and triumphing to win your heart for himself. He wants to capture your heart as a response to his overwhelming love and for you to love him back. Besides, loving Jesus is the primary commandment. It's not exactly a secret. Remember when he was asked, what is the first and greatest commandment? He answered, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. He said, love God. It's as he was saying, love me. The most important and highest thing you can do with all your life, he says, is to love me. Loving Jesus is actually the fire that fuels every other good work in our lives. Voluntarily offering our love to God is the first and most important thing that we can do. And friends, we don't need to drum this up. We love because he first loved us. Loving Jesus is the heart's natural response to being love. One who has been ransomed loves the one who has ransomed her. We are invited to minister to Jesus as well with our offerings of worship, to sit at his feet, to fix our gaze on him, to listen to his words by opening up the words, to offer him our undivided worship from an undivided heart. And from far away? No. In an intimate encounter. I looked up the word intimate because it can be fraught with some other connotations. This is what it means. To be closely acquainted, familiar, intimate friends. It means close, dear, cherished faithful, devoted, informal, chummy, involving very close connection, personal, private, confidential, secret. Isn't that awesome? Oh, I want that with God. Religious Pharisees and the religious spirit of today says, you cannot approach God freely. You cannot come before him with your messy, bedraggled self. Clean yourself up first, but by all means, keep your distance. But that is not what God says. That is not what Jesus came for. He came and bled and died for us so that we may enter the throne room boldly, that we run in, that we come near. The reason we can pursue God with such intense courage is because he wants us to. The heartbeat of God from Genesis to Revelation is that he wants to be known by us, to yada him. He knows us, and he longs for us to know him as well. One day we will perfectly face to face, but we can increasingly know him, experience him throughout our lives. This God of ours He wants to share our life with us. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Henry Nouwen wrote, The truly good news is that God is not a distant God, but a God who is moved by our pain 
and participates in the fullness of the human struggle. Let me say it again. God knows us. He wants us to know him. John 17, verse 3 says, Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. To know him like this, to experience him like this, to share life with him like this, this is yada knowing. This is life. You know that we are living in Act 3 that we are living in a world at war. It has always been at war, and it will be at war until Jesus puts all his enemies under his feet. He doesn't wait for peace around us or peace within us to invite us to come to him. He doesn't wait for perfection, certainly, inside of us to invite us to come to him, to come close. Friends, right now, he wants you to come close. We can have an intimate encounter with Jesus. We can minister to him with our love, like Mary of Bethany. So you know what? I want to practice that now. I want you, if you can, to get someplace comfortable for a few minutes or press pause in this podcast right now and come back to this part later. Don't do this while you're driving, and don't do it while you're distracted. Take a few minutes, turn your phone off, and settle in. Ready? Okay. Get comfortable. Relax. Take a few deep breaths. Lord, as we do take these deep breaths, help us to gather our scattered senses to focus onto you. Help our hearts come into an undistracted place. Jesus, come. Help us to become aware of your presence within. Friends, just sink into his presence. Imagine right now that you are just sinking into the most comfortable of chairs. Christ is within you. Listen to these scriptures. 2 Corinthians 13.5 Or do you not realize about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Romans 8.10 Christ is in you. Galatians 2.20 I am crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. Colossians 1.27 to whom God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Romans 8, 11, the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. He lives in you. Breathe deeply again. Jesus, we give you our attention. We come close. We turn our attention to your spirit within us. Friends, if you'd like, imagine you are like Mary, sitting at the feet of Jesus, your gaze locked on him, 
your heart attentive to his every words. Holy Spirit, help us to fix our gaze on Jesus. When distractions come, even in this moment, just notice them, but then release them. Let them go. You'll come back to them in a minute or two. Sometimes it may help to say out loud, I surrender to your affection. You can say it with me. I surrender to your affection. Or to thank him. Thank you, God, for for your love, for your pursuits. You can get specific here. What do you want to thank him for? I worship you, God. I worship you. I worship you for the beauty of creation, for your faithfulness, for saving me. I exalt you as king. Jesus, your name is the name above all names. We thank you, God. We breathe you in. Your very name, Yahweh, is our breath. We love you, Jesus. We love you. We love you. You are worthy to receive all our praise. We adore you. We honor you. Thank you, Jesus. Okay, friends, that's very simple, but that's it for now. We can practice that anytime and often. It's not something to strive for, but something simply to rest in. It is vital in this hour that we are living in that we become increasingly aware of and enjoy his presence within us. It is available. It's in his presence that we're changed, that we're healed, that we're transformed. It's in his presence that we come to know, to yada know his love. It's there that he speaks to us about our life and our creative partnerships. It's in his presence. And we grow in this as we practice it. We encounter him as we practice this. I'm going to read another quote, this one from Dallas Willard. The first and most basic thing we can and must do is to keep God before our minds. This is the fundamental secret of caring for our souls. Our part in thus practicing the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to Him. In the early time of our practicing, we may well be challenged by our burdens and habits of dwelling on things less than God, but these are habits, not the law of gravity, and can be broken. A new, grace-filled habit will replace the former ones as we take intentional steps toward keeping God before us. Soon our minds will return to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. If God is the great longing of our souls, he will become the pole star of our inward beings. Friends, we're not on our own to do this. This is what God desires, and he will help us. Another tool to help you on this I want to remind you of is the Pause app. It's available for free, and it's such a tool to just simply turn our attention to God in the morning, in the evening, and in the middle of our day. It's really transformative. See, we are meant to know God to experience him, 
to come close and then to come closer. And we can because we're invited to. So bless you, friends. Thank you for being with me. And may this be a day that you experience the tangible presence of God and the overwhelming love that he holds for you.